The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. Swung on, long drive, right field, and this one belongs to the rim. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. This is a momentous evening. For Mark and I here tonight, because this is the first time in the five years that we've been doing this show, August 24th, 2015, we started in 2011, that both teams occupy the basement of their divisions at the same time. It's an unbelievable event and achievement that we have reached here this evening, the depths that only a few teams know of, and now Mark and I know what it is. So what do we do? We've got to go down south and talk with our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue, about this momentous occasion. Mark, good evening. How are you tonight? I am well, David, but let let me clarify something uh, here. Uh, There's last place, and then there's really last place. Uh, The Indians are in last place, but how many games out of first place are they? They are 17 and a half games out. Okay, the Reds, I think, are 25 or 26 games out. and that, The Reds are 26 and a half games out. Okay. That, that is a level of out that has not been achieved by a Reds team in a long, long time. And while the Indians are way out of first place, 17 games, uh, after watching the Cincinnati Reds play for more than a half a century and seeing a lot of games over those those many, many years, I can honestly say without hyperbole, I'm not making stuff up. This is the worst Cincinnati Reds team right now that I have ever seen. Ever? Ever. This is, and I, in fact, I went back statistically, the, the, 80, the um, 81 team uh, lost 100 games, but that team had a better, had better statistics, had better upside, had better players in, in the minor leagues than the Reds have right now. Uh, th- this, is, this is historical. What Reds fans are going through this year uh, is unlike anything I can recall. Now, there may have been teams, I'm trying to think back in the 40s, way beyond my time, even earlier than me, and the 30s, the Reds were really, really bad back then. But the Reds have a chance to lose 100 games this year. They are almost certainly going to be in last place in their division. They have a chance, Dave. They have a real legitimate chance to have the worst record in baseball and get the number one draft pick. And they're right now going to be losing their 10th game in a row tonight. And it's, and not only that, they got the Dodgers coming up for four games. <laughs> it's, I mean, this team, honest to God, this team can lose 15 or 20 games in a row over the next week. And, and people thought Mark Schott was a terrible owner. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know where we, we've, we've beat this to death. Where do you play? Where do you place this blame? But this is an organizational meltdown. This is not because of Brian Price. 
It's not because of Walt Jockety or, or even Bob Castellini. Every, every aspect of an organization has to fail to make this happen, to have this kind of outcome. And it is, is really unprecedented that I can recall. I mean, if, if people, you know, want to remind me of a year that's worse than this, I'm all ears. I can't remember one. And the Reds have only lost 100 games once. It was 81. And they have a chance to do it again this year. Well, we've got a special guest here this evening coming up in a little bit. That was going to be the son of former Indians, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia closer, Jose Mesa. And Indian fans will remember Jose Mesa. We're going to talk to his son, Jose Mesa Jr., coming up at about the half-hour mark of tonight's show. It's a pre-recorded interview because, of course, Jose Mesa is playing minor league baseball. He's in Class A ball with the New York Yankees in Charleston, and we're going to be talking with him coming up in just a little bit. There's a lot more going on in tonight's show. But, Mark, you know, we've talked about the Indian, the, the Reds, I should say. The Indians remind me, as I have said time and time again, of Al Pacino, in Godfather 3, and I'm going to try this, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. And that's what the Indians have done all year long. They're not good enough to make the playoffs, but yet they're sitting right there, Mark, on the precipice of being involved in the wild card chase. They're six and a half games behind. How can a team go into Boston, the last place team in the American League East, lose two out of three, as badly as they did, and then go into New York in Yankee Stadium and win three out of four against a team that is battling not only for the playoffs but first place against Toronto. This team just amazes me what they've done this year and what they haven't done this year. Well, we've said all along, and we had this conversation at least a month ago, where they were only four games out of the wild card. And we talked about the fact, <clears throat> were they going to be buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? Uh, would they be aggressive? Would they, would they look at that four-game deficit as an opportunity for them? Or is their decision, no, we're not going to compete? Well, the, 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 theoretically, they're still in it. It could happen. It's not going to happen. But uh, mathematic-wise, they're still in it. So the, the Indians, just bottom line, the Indians have more talent than the Reds. On their 25-man roster, on their 40-man roster, all the way down to Double A, that—that's what's so frightening about the Reds. And the Indians were able to bring up Lindor, even though I know you didn't want him brought up. Uh, and, and and he's performed. What's he hitting? 290. Uh, I think he's ex, he's exceeded even your expectations. The Reds don't have those kinds of players in the minor leagues. No, you're right. Lindor has exceeded my expectations. I would have been happy with this kid hitting 250, 240. Even he was, but Francisco Lindor, Mark, over the 62 games that he has played this year, he's got 74 hits, seven home runs. He's batting 298. Yesterday they had him hit leadoff for the first time, and he went three for four against the Yankees. This kid has done an amazing job. Do I expect him to be a 300 hitter throughout his career? No. Do I expect him to be maybe a 270 to 280 hitter? Yeah, I think that is possible. But the thing that I always liked about Lindor was his defensive play. And I think if you're going to have a team like the Indians say they want, 
a team that is dominated by its pitching. You've got to have a stellar shortstop. You have to. You cannot have somebody out there that's going to boot the routine plays. And Lindor is that kid. But the big story coming out of Cleveland this week wasn't the fact that Johnny Manziel's elbow is sore and now he's got to sit out for a while. You know, matter of fact, Mark, we might as well talk about the Bengals and Browns. I, you know, we we could do that for a couple of weeks and maybe be just as entertaining as talking about our two baseball teams. But anyway, getting getting back to baseball, the thing that I'm excited about is the actual opportunity that Mark Shapiro, the Indians president, has in front of him as he has emerged probably the leading candidate to take over the presidency of the Toronto Blue Jays. I love this idea. I hope Toronto takes him. I know he was up for the commissioner's job when Rob Manfred got it. I was hoping he got that. He was up for the Cubs job before Theo Epstein got that. I was hoping he would have gotten that. I'm hoping for any job that Mark Shapiro wants that will take him out of Cleveland. He's been here 24 years, and that's 23 years too long. Dave, I have a feeling you don't like Shapiro. I don't know why you would think that. I'm trying to hide it as well as I can. No, I, I saw through it. I mean, I, I really don't think you like him. But, you know, in, in terms of eva- how do you evaluate these general managers, these front office guys, other than with a win-loss record? Is is there any kind of, of matrix that you could have? I mean, you, you have the numbers behind the numbers on players. You can look at OPS, on-base percentage, all, those, all these other uh, w, uh, war, all that stuff. But how do you really measure – how good a front office personnel member is other than win-losses. You know, unfortunately, that is a very hard formula to come up. And I guess the thing that I go with is twofold. One is gut feeling, and the second is, is this GM or president trying to improve the product on the field? Because, Mark, as far as I'm concerned, The ancillary things around a ball club, for example, Shapiro has made such a big deal this year about building the corner bar out in right field, building the playpen that they've got for the kids out in right field, and what a great family atmosphere that this has accomplished. And during his years, he's brought in Dollar Dog Night, and you know what I think about that. He's brought in 62 fireworks nights to the Indians. And, and, Mark, I'm telling you, as far as I'm concerned, you improve the product on the field, the fans come. They did it 455 consecutive times when the Indians were winning. You put a winning product on the field, the fans will come. You put something ancillary, not on the field, like Dollar Dog Night and Fireworks, the fans don't come. And that's what Shapiro has concentrated on, not the field, the ancillary. And that's why I say he's been an unsuccessful front office personnel. Let me argue with you about that. Because I don't think Major League Baseball teams, I mean, there there are 30 teams. 29 of them will have a loss at the end of the year and not win a World Series. Uh, Most of them will not make the playoffs. And I I don't think, sure, Bob Castellini wants to win. Yeah, it's an ego deal. We're the best team in baseball. Look what I did. But I don't think in today's business world that general managers, and that's why I posed the question a few minutes ago, 
I don't think they are judged solely by win-losses. In fact, it may not even be in the top two or three criteria. I think they look at other things. They look at the, the, your EBITDA number, uh, earnings before taxes, uh, depreciation, taxes, depreciation, all that stuff, amortization. Uh, th- that's what they look at. They look at your return on equity, uh, return to investors, uh, relations with the press, uh, public relations, things they do outside the baseball field, uh, good time fun for the fans at the ballpark, all those things. David, I don't think they look at winning as they did years ago as the uh, penultimate or the most important thing that uh, a team can do. There's too many other things, including stockholders. So, you know, when you look at Shapiro, and you, you kid, and I know you're tongue in cheek about dollar dog night and all that stuff, but I think that goes into how they evaluate a, a front office person. And it's I no agree longer with you. wins and losses. I agree with you. Now let me give the uh, 455. That, that number sticks in my head. They had no dollar dog night. They had very little fireworks except for what was going on in the field. And people came out in droves. Now let's forget about Cleveland. Let's move over to Pittsburgh. Let's talk about the Pirates. For 20 years, the Pirates were out of the playoffs. Remember when, about 5, 10 years ago, they were talking about Pittsburgh moving, going to another city because of the attendance was so bad? There was no talk now about the Pirates moving. Why? Because the team is winning and they're selling out each and every night. When St. Louis has a bad season, yeah, they bring people out, but not to the capability that they do when they're winning. I'm looking at a franchise, Mark, that is pretty much third in town in Cleveland right now. They're apathetic towards the Indians. The Cavaliers are probably number one as far as that's concerned in Cleveland. And the Browns are probably number two. Last year with Johnny Manziel coming in, they were probably number one. LeBron coming back, one, one A. You could say that. The Indians get very little coverage, very little fan support. Everyone is apathetic towards the Indians. The Indians can get away with whatever they want realistically, Mark, and, and really not have a problem with it. But if this team won, it would be number one in the hearts. Why? Because people love the Indians, but they don't want to go down there and watch a product that is subpar like this. Well, you know, we have no way of knowing what goes on behind the scenes with ownership. What is their priority? Uh, True. But don't forget, I have been at the corporate level with some pretty big companies, and notwithstanding any other consideration, if you're making money, if your bottom line number is good, that is going to be the first thing you're going to pat you on the head and say, good job. Yeah, you finished fifth, but hey, we made a lot of dough this year. Our stockholders are thrilled, uh, and we made money because enough people showed up. Uh, should we take a chance next year and sign some free agents or make some big deals and maybe mess up what we have going financially? <laughs> I, I just don't think that realistically you can go into every season as an owner and say, our goal this year is to win. I, I don't think they, they care anymore. They have the TV contracts. They're going to make money no matter what. Unfortunately, I think you're right. 
I, I really do. I don't think winning is the number one priority of front offices anymore. And I think that's what gets my goat, Mark, is that, you know, they try to tell you that winning is important, but it's not. But I could tell you right now, as a baseball fan, as a true baseball fan, I could care less if there's a bar out in right field. I could I could have cared less, to be honest with you, Mark, when my kids were 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, if there was a playpen out in right field. I couldn't have cared less because my boys stayed with me and watched the game when we went to the games. And to sit here and try to pass this stuff off and the the commercials that the Indians run anymore about, you know, memories are made here. What memories, Mark? I mean, seriously, what memories? So you brought your kid to the game and watched the Indians get beat 8-2. to two. Who the heck cares? You know, that, that's a very good point you bring up because this weekend was Tony Perez weekend in Cincinnati. And it made yep. a big deal. It was, it was three days of celebration of Tony Perez, who was a great player, uh, and, and all that. Everybody loves Tony Perez. But when you're looking back all the time, I mean, the big red machine was 40 years ago. And, and that is, that's your legacy that you, that you salute to all the time? Sure. It, it, they, they were 75, 76 were, were great seasons. But it, it's depressing to me that the team has to go back 40 years to try and bring in some nostalgia because this team on the field is so horrific that they know nobody wants to watch it. So they have to have these kinds of trumped-up events to bring out Johnny Bench for the 50th time this year uh, or, or Joe Morgan, who can barely walk, and you know Pete Rose and, and all these guys. That, I love those guys. But why isn't there more attention being paid to today's team and next year's team? And that's why, as a Reds fan for so many years, this this is a this is a watershed year, and the fact that they had so many players this year that simply fell off the radar, who were supposed to be the leaders for the next decade for this team, like Tony Singrani. Tony Singrani is back in AAA getting lit up. This guy was supposed to be our our number three pitcher this year, our number four pitcher next year. And it's just not happening. They, they have misread the talent on this organization to such a degree that you don't, you don't believe them anymore. You know, See, my, my problem has always been, Mark, with the Indians, and, and I'm seeing some of this happening with the Reds right now, is that they don't give the youth, the young players, a chance to fail. They, it seems like they're scared to let these kids fail for fear that it's going to affect their psyche in years to come. And, Mark, I'm telling you, if these players don't have the opportunity to fail, like a Singrani, a Stevenson, an Iglesias, if they don't have the opportunity to fail because there's the, the front office is scared about their psyche, they've got no business being in the major leagues. Well, I'll give you this. The Reds are giving them a chance to fail, and they are. Uh, Iglesias is, is the exception to that. He has pitched very, very well this year. Yesterday, I'll tell you, he struck out 13 yesterday, and at times he looked unhittable. This this guy is apparently the real deal, but he is the exception. 
And you look at the Reds tonight was the 25th game in a row where they've started a rookie pitcher. And these guys are getting lit up. And if these are supposed to be our, our starting rotation next year, <laughs> it's frightening. But there, there's more than pitching. There's no there's no position players. Uh, the bullpen is a mess. There's nobody in AAA or AA. And, uh, again, it's every team has a bad year. And you sometimes they have a couple of bad years. But you can see on the horizon, like with Kansas City, Kansas City a couple of years ago, remember you and I picked them to be uh, number one or two in the division, and they ended up last again after finishing last several years in a row. But you could see what they had in their minor leagues. And, man, they had a, a dynamite minor league system. And look at them now. I mean, they're, they're, they're a dynamo. So you, you can accept it. Look at Pittsburgh. You could see it coming with Pittsburgh. It, it, unless you see something I don't, I don't see it coming with the Reds at all. Well, I'm impressed with their pitching. But the thing about it is, Mark, let me ask you this question. For example, a Singrani, a Steven, they haven't even given Stevenson an opportunity. You know, they haven't brought him up. I remember Jared Wright back in 97 was getting lit up in A. The Indians took a flyer, brought him up. He almost pitched him to the World Championship that year. You know, you cannot always go by what a player is doing in the minor leagues. Lindor, for example, wasn't playing all that well in the minor leagues this year, and I attributed that to the fact that he won the starting shortstop's job in spring training. He won it, hands down. He beat Jose Ramirez. But they wanted to keep Ramirez up because they wanted Lindor to go back down so they could save their arbitration time with him. I think that messes with a kid's head. I, a lot of people disagree with me on that. But you know what? If you're a kid dangling and you've got that carrot of Major League Baseball right in front of them, and you yank it away from them when they know they've won the job. I think it affects them for a while. And I think Stevenson, for example, I think maybe he got lit up in the in spring training and, and couldn't understand why. Singrani, I remember you and I talking about Singrani during spring training, Mark. We thought he pitched well. We thought he did a pretty good job in spring training. Came the regular season, he pitched, what was it, twice in the first month? Yeah. He didn't get any opportunities to throw. But when, yeah, he did. He got some opportunities to throw, and he walked. He walked the world. Uh, he was getting beat up after he pitched a, a good game against the Cardinals, the first game. Uh, after that, he got smashed. And my, my point is the evaluation of the talent. You, you and I are saying different things. You're saying give the young talent a chance. I don't. I don't disagree with that. What I'm saying is when you do give them a chance. With with Stevenson. Now, you and I have talked about Robert Stevenson for how many years? Three years? Two years. Two or three. Two, two three years. You're right. And everybody says this is the next Tom Seaver or this is the next uh, Schilling or whomever it is. Well, this guy is in double A ball. He had a 346 ERA. In triple in A, it wasn't much better. He's not overpowering. He, he he's, a, he's a good pitcher, apparently. But he's not... If you're ready to come in and be the guy, you know, be the number two, number three starter in a major league rotation, you should be dominating minor league baseball. You should have a 1-5, ERA. You ought to be striking out uh, one and a half guys in inning. Uh, your whip ought to be under under one. Uh, but that's not the case. These guys are coming in and they're getting they're getting their head knocked in every other time they go out. 
And that is not a superstar. That's a guy barely making it. And I think with the Reds, they're afraid to bring up Stevenson for fear he'll come up here and get lit up. And now what do you do? What do you do then? All this hype for Stevenson, all the young guys they've got, and they're bringing them up, and they're not producing. Well, we talk about all this, and I didn't even get an opportunity to say that the Indians lost a makeup game today in Wrigley Field against the Cubs. They fell to the Cubs this afternoon 2-1 to one on a Chris Bryant home run in the bottom of the ninth off Zach McAllister. Mark, Corey Kluber started the game. A couple of stats on Corey Kluber for you. This was the seventh start Kluber has made this year where he left the game giving up only one run. And it was the 17th start he has made this year where he left giving up two runs or less. That's an amazing stat for a guy who's got a losing record. You know, Kluber's one of those guys. I saw him pitch earlier this year on TV. I forget who he was pitching against. He got beat. I think he got beat like 3-1, to 4-1, to one, something like that. But, you know, he throws pitches that they look like wiffle balls. And they're, and they're coming in at 94 miles an hour. And, or, you know, his changeup looks like it's, you know, 90, 89, something like that. Um, he, he looks like the most unhittable pitcher in baseball at times. I, I don't know how he has a losing record. His stuff just looks fantastic. The Indians just don't score any runs for him. That that's the problem. It almost goes back to 1968 when Louis Tiant said about the Cleveland Indians, "If I give up one run, we tie. If I give up two runs, we lose." And that's the way this season has gone for Corey Kluber. Unfortunately, the Reds, as we said, are 20 games under 500. They're 51 and 71 going into tonight. They had a winless week, Mark. They didn't win a game last week. They were 0 and 6. And really the only exciting thing that happened was in yesterday's game when Ryan Lamari's parents, they showed them on TV yesterday. I was watching the game in his first at bat, 26-year-old rookie coming up for the Reds. And just watching his mother and father during that four-pitch at bat is basically what it was. And then he grounded a second and reached on a fielder's choice. Just watching them just kind of gives you the idea of what a family goes through as far as when their son is up to the plate or pitching. Yeah, and by the way, his mother is rather hot. I will say that, too. Very attractive woman. And no, 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 you're not going to get an argument here. Okay, no. good. Uh, and, yeah, you can see it written on her face, and she would mouth things like, oh, no, don't do that, or, oh, my I God. Can't I, I can't watch this. Yeah, she, it was so cute. She goes, <laughs> I can't watch this. I can't watch this. You can see it very clearly when, she's, when she mouthed those words. And then he got its base hit. And, you know, it's it's a great event. And if you have a kid who plays sports at whatever level, my son played uh, collegiately. Uh, he played tennis and, at, 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 you know, Division One, and uh, a very good tennis player in high school and all that stuff. And you, you live and die with, with what your your athletes of your family, be they male or female, what they do. And if you have a kid that is playing sports at whatever level, it is truly a family commitment. And I could really understand what those parents are going through and uh, the commitment they give a, a child to, to live their dream. And if you think you can, you know, be 26 years old and playing minor league baseball and not have some family help, ain't going to happen. Well, look at the Reds. You've got Ken Griffey Sr., Ken Griffey Jr. Imagine the pride 
of Ken Griffey Sr. playing in the same game. Matter of fact, batting in front of his son when they both played in Seattle. How about Pete Rose when Pete Rose Jr. made it to the major leagues? I don't think they played together, if I remember right, Mark, but Pete Rose Jr. making the major leagues. You know, you, you look at them. Barry Larkin is the same way. A lot of people don't realize Shane Larkin with the Knicks is playing NBA basketball. Well, but imagine Barry Larkin and what he's going through with his son. Yeah, and Barry Larkin had a brother. I forget his brother's name, another brother, who actually they played together, I, I think is in, in the 93 or 94 season. They played one or two games together. Uh, but I think one of the greatest thrills that I've ever seen on a baseball field was when Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey Jr. went back-to-back for home runs in Seattle when uh, Sr. went out and played with Seattle. I think it was the last year he played, and he hit a home run, and then his son followed him up, and he hit a home run. <laughs> I mean, but what a well, thrill. And then you've got the story of Jose Mesa, who is a very, very successful closer for the Indians. One game is what really people remember about Jose Mesa, and that was in the ninth inning of Game 7 of the World Series. Yeah, a pretty, pretty important game. <laughs> but, but Jose Mesa was a very successful closer. Had a few years where he wasn't as good, went to Pittsburgh, went to Philadelphia, regained his closer role, and became a dominant closer. I mean, he pitched 19 years in the major leagues, Mark. Over 300 saves for Jose Mesa. Pretty darn good career for Jose Mesa. And now his son is pitching in the Yankees system, single A, in Charleston. He's had Tommy John surgery. But I had an opportunity to talk to him last week, Mark, about what his father embedded in him as far as becoming a major league pitcher, how to live life through the minor leagues, and how to make it to the major leagues. And I and I'll tell you, Mark, this kid, Jose Mesa Jr., no matter what his dad did on the field, I think he did a super job with this kid because, as you're going to hear, this kid is very mature and just a really, really nice kid, 22 years old. Jose, thanks for joining us here tonight. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for joining us here tonight. You know, your father spent 19 years in Major League Baseball as the reliever, and, and actually he started out his career, I remember, as a starter. Now you're in the Yankee organization. Tell us a little bit about what you learned from your father throughout his Major League career and just what he has embedded in you as you embark on yours. Um, one of the main things that I remember from my father is always to work hard, uh, always give it 100%. And even even in baseball, that there's always going to be some hard times. And whenever hard times come, just keep grinding it out and working hard. And if you're giving your 100% and doing your job working hard, that it should always be enough and you should always get the job done. You know, he was a big guy. I remember him being 6'3", 6'4", about 200 pounds. But from what I'm seeing, you're a little bit taller than him and you're a little bit more broad in stature. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, right now it is, but if you get to see him right now, he's been hitting the weights a lot, so he looks a little bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> he's are you as strong in, now. Are, are you well, as intimidating on the mound, Jose? A little bit bigger. Okay. 
Are you as intimidating looking on the mound as he was? Uh, I'm hoping I am. <laughs> you know, you, you said you just got promoted to Charleston, but when I was looking at your stats this morning, your last 10 games, you really pitched lights out. Are you finally seeing from your Tommy John surgery that you had a couple of years ago, are you finally seeing the strength coming back into your arm? Yeah, the strength is coming back. Everything's feeling well, thanks to God. And I'm being able to execute all my pitches, and, and I've been able to work work ahead in the count, which is one of the main things, and just also just been able to, to feel good again. And my arm feels great, thanks to God, and I just hope to keep it going. What What is the recuperation period like on that surgery, Jose? What What was it like for you, and what was the rehab like? Well, um, at first, uh, the first four months, pretty much all you do is try and get your range of motion back, trying to straighten out your arm. Um, after after the, the four months went by is when you're actually able to, to start doing your tosses, be able to start throwing 60 feet. And uh, after, like, I would say seven, eight months is when you actually can, can get off the mound and start throwing at least flat grounds and, uh, short mounds and stuff like that, and then uh, I, I ended up throwing in games at 11 and a half months, which was pretty quick because it usually takes a year, but thanks to God I had no setbacks, and I was able to do that. You know, it, I've always heard that after that surgery, it normally takes about two years for that arm strength to build back up. Are you finding that that is the case? Yeah, actually, last year um, my, uh, my arm strength was a little bit there. You know, it felt good. Some people get it back quicker than others, but this year is when it's really started to carry up and it, uh, everything's been starting to work well. What is, what is your fastball peaking out at right now? Uh, well, right now I, I've been peaking out at about 94. Now it's when it's, you know, getting the strength back again. It's been sitting like 92, 93, and I'll throw in there some 94. Jose, you, you really had an outstanding high school baseball career, and I know in reading up on you, uh, you had a decision to make as to whether to go to college or, or take the Yankees off, or you were the 24th round pick of the Yankees. But what was the deciding factor in, in you deciding to hit the Yankees farmhand in, instead of going to college? Well, um, I had I had earlier calls, but didn't really take what they were offering. And uh, when the Yankees chose me, they, they picked me, and then the scout that had that had always covered me called me and told me that they had picked me. And uh, it was just a, a, a factor of uh, me praying and feeling well with my family, and we felt that it was the best option because it was also an opportunity that was given to me. They gave me the chance also to go to college to pay for my studies, and I, uh, we just felt that it was a good opportunity because it's a great organization, and they, um, pretty much just we felt that it was in God's plans, and this is what God wanted. Jose, when you went through the, the Tommy John surgery, other than obviously medical, how much did the Yankee organization stick by you during that period? Uh, pretty much the whole way. I mean, they they had me in their they had me in the facility in Tampa rehabbing at first, and then when the season came to an end that everybody was going home, they were able to send me to a, a pretty good person in Miami in Aventura, where a lot of major leaguers and other athletes rehab as well. And I was able to keep doing my rehab over there by my house, and they're pretty much there the whole way. They would call me uh, 
every week, every two weeks. They would call me to check up on me, ask me to send them videos, ask me to send them photos of how everything looked, and, and thanks to God they were with me the whole way, and they've stuck behind me since. Jose, when did you, when did you actually know that you had a chance to have a big league career? Well, thanks to God, uh, um, since I was a child, I was, I could see how I would I would uh, be able to play with older children, older older teens, you know, at, at a young age. So I was always pretty much, I guess, a little bit better than people that were more my age. So I, I knew that I had a chance to be able to at least play at a high level. And then once I got to high school, I was always confident in myself and I knew what I could do. And thanks to God, I just pretty much knew all along that I was going to be able to have this opportunity. So, Jose, what do the Yankees have? What do they project you to be, a reliever, a starter? What are they thinking? Um, well, right now I can't. I honestly can't answer that question as in uh, what they're going to do for next year. But I know that after surgery they wanted to bring me back as a reliever. But from what I heard, everybody's, like, pretty impressed and everything with how I can maintain strength throughout innings. And, like, I could pitch the first inning the same as I'll pitch the third inning and my relief and They've been pretty impressed with that, so you never know if they might end up wanting to bring me in as a starter next season. But I always know that since they signed me, the scout always wanted me to be as a as a starter, as a reliever. I'm sorry, he always said that he saw me as my father. So, what do you figure that you have to work on in the minor leagues in order to make it up to the majors? Um, as a reliever, I figure that what I need to work on right now is just pretty much stay consistent. Because that's pretty much the same thing. That that's pretty much the only thing that takes you to big being consistent, being consistent, and keep working hard. If I keep doing that, then every time I go out there should be a good outing, and just pretty much stay working hard and not get uh, not 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 get too ahead of myself and want to do things you know uh, um, like too much at once and staying within myself and keep doing my job and everything should be fine. You know, earlier I brought up the fact that your last 10 games, it seemed like you had really pitched outstanding ball. What are you finding that you're having the most success doing now in those last 10 games? What are you finding is, is the reason for this? Well, in those last 10 games, I was just able to go out there and pitch with confidence. Pitch with confidence and have my faith in, in myself and in God and uh, be able to put the ball wherever I wanted. I felt that I would go out there and I would just pretty much say, like, okay, the catcher called the fastball, I'm going to throw a fastball here and he's not going to hit it. Whether I put it inside or outside, that's just pretty much how I felt. I just felt it and I keep the same mentality that whatever I throw out there, I'm going to give him my 100% and it's going to be better than his 100% because he's not going to be able to hit it. That's just how I was thinking. If I'm right, you've got about a month left to go on the minor league schedule? We have about, yeah, about three weeks, three weeks left. What What are you hoping to accomplish in those three weeks? I'm hoping to finish strong and and have a better have even better numbers here in Charleston than I did in Staten Island. Just keep improving and and be able to do well at this level right here would would show a lot for me to be able to start at a higher level next year. That's pretty Jose, much what I'm trying to keep on. Okay, you, you know, 19 years your dad spent in the majors. When you were growing up, you primarily saw him in Major League Baseball. You saw how everybody traveled and 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 worked out in Major League Baseball. Now you're in the minor leagues. Talk a little bit about the difference between the majors and the minors. I know there's a bunch, but is, is it kind of a shell shock for you? 
Well, in the, in the major leagues, you know, there's, there's some people that wouldn't really put in a lot of work, and maybe that's why they wouldn't stay there as long. And, I mean, in the minor leagues, there's a lot of people that are hungry, a lot of people that want to get up there. So you see a lot of people that are actually working hard. I mean, a lot of times you see people that don't really put in the work, and maybe that's why they don't stick stick around along a, a, a lot in here. But in the major league, pretty much everybody had done something to be there, and uh, everybody would go out there every day and just pretty much be able to, to do what they wanted because that's the whole reason why they were there. They they're in the big leagues for a reason. They were able to go out there and be able to, to pretty much – uh, uh, play the way that they wanted to play, you know, uh, pitch how they wanted to pitch and be able to do the things that made them feel comfortable. In the minor leagues, everything's a little bit different. You have to pretty much go by the organization until they let you go into your own style. How about the travel? How about, how about the travel oh, in the minor leagues? The travel, uh, the travel, this is my first year really seeing far road trips in bus, but it, it, it's pretty hectic. I mean, there would be games that you get out at uh, 11 o'clock, you leave at 12.30, and you get to the next place at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you have to you you have to sleep until 2, and then you have to get ready to play that day, and you might even have to pitch that day, so you have to get ready as well. There's, you can't have no excuse about, oh, I feel stiff from the bus ride. You have to be ready to perform. In the big leagues, everything's on plane, so the farthest trip you have might be five hours if you go across, like, cross-country. And you still get there at around, let's say, 2 in the morning, and then you could sleep until 12 or 1 and go to the field at 2 or 3. So everything's a lot more comfortable up there, that's for sure. Jose Mason, Jr. has been our guest here this evening. He's with Charleston right now in single A of the Yankees Farm System, son of Jose Mesa. Jose, thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Mark, it's real easy to forget that these players have families, that they're somebody's kids. And it's also real easy to forget that these minor leaguers, for every one minor leaguer that makes it to the major leagues, I don't know what the odds are, but there's 10 or 15 that are left behind in the minor leagues. It's real easy to forget that thing, those things. Yeah, and actually the statistic I heard most recently was about a year ago that only – 4% of uh, minor league players make it to the big leagues, uh, which is an amazing statistic, uh, guys that are signed to contracts. And of that, how many become stars? It's an incredible risk you're taking when you say, I'm going to sign. And, you know, this young man, clearly intelligent, and you're right, very likable young man. Uh, there was some clearly some good parenting at work here. But, you know, the kid, in his case, in Jose Mesa Jr.'s case, he has the financial ability to say no to college, roll the dice, and pursue his dream because he comes from a family that can afford to support him and help him, and uh, I, I wish him the best of luck. But, you know, baseball, I'll tell you, of all the sports, uh, being a Major League Baseball player and the schedule they have, it's the most incredible thing that the, and I think it's a lot of players. That's why they don't sur survive. Uh, you're playing with exhibition games. You're playing over 200 games between March 1st and the end of September. That's that's unbelievable. And they got to go out there and perform every night. Not only a three-hour game, but you have the warm-ups before the batting practice, getting to the park two hours early. 
the, the mental part of the game uh, is as trying on players, certainly, as the physical. And, you know, that brings up something that I've, I've heard about Joe Madden, and they talked about it today, the Cubs manager. And once again, our thanks to Jose Mesa Jr. for being our guest here this evening. But Joe Madden has told the Cubs, Mark, through the month of August, don't show up early for batting practice. You don't need it. Just rest. Come to the ballpark a couple hours before the game. Stretch out. Get ready for the game. Play the game. You don't need batting practice right now. If we think you need it, we'll let you know. I want you fresh for September. And Joe Madden, you know, he's the type of manager, Mark, that he just always tends to go against the predominant thinking of major league people. And he just consistently wins by doing it. You know, growing up, again, I played a lot of sports like you did, uh, football, basketball, baseball, track, uh, all all these different sports. And the thing that struck me when I was a kid about baseball managers were they were dumb. Now I'm not I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but they they had this mentality of not being too bright. Uh, most of them didn't go to college, and uh, you know it, it just wasn't the, the kind of environment that you needed to have a, a pretty high IQ to play in. That's changed. Most of the players today go to college. Not all, but many do. And you have guys now, managers, with advanced degrees, uh, not in baseball necessarily, but just, you know, Tony, Tony DeRusso's got a Ph.D. Uh, Joe Madden's got a degree. A lot of these guys, Brian Price, has, I think he has a master's degree. So you have a lot of smart people, and I love it. I mean, Joe Madden has been a favorite of mine for, for a number of years. And what he's done with Tampa Bay what he's done with Chicago. I'll tell you what, if the Cubs, going into tonight, I think the Cubs are only six games behind the Cardinals, and they have a real chance for the wild card. I mean, I think they're five games ahead of the Giants for the wild card. Yeah, it's right now it's Pittsburgh and and Chicago as the wild card. That's right. And if if he, he makes a winner this year out of this team, or they win next year, and they can, they can do it, this guy is going to be a legendary figure in Chicago for the next 500 years. Absolutely. I mean, people in Chicago still like Dusty Baker. Oh, sure, sure. Jim, Jim Fry? That's right. Jim Fry is, is a curse word in Kansas City, but in Chicago he's a hero. Yeah, and again, you know, Joe Madden does things like you just mentioned, which is so logical. I mean, why would you make... Your team come in in the heat of August for batting practice two hours before a game. And they they played a game last night. Are you telling me they're going to be better hitters? That's ridiculous. And to have the guts to do that, and Joe Madden's done other things, you know, that that were kind of out of the box, and it it works. And I love his creativity. He's not afraid to take a chance. And I, I think he's the best manager in baseball right now. I, I would I would agree with you. Mark, this has nothing to do with baseball, but this just came across my phone. Uh, 37-year-old IndyCar driver Justin Wilson died tonight from that severe head injury that he sustained at Pocono Raceway on Sunday. So Justin Wilson died tonight from those injuries. Just want to let everybody know that as it just came across my phone. I know it has nothing to do with baseball, but want to let everybody know that because that was a big story yesterday that that race and that accident and 
and he has he has died here this evening. So our thoughts go out to his family. Mark, the Billy Hamilton injury, talk a little bit about that. What's the status of him right now? Well, he's in a cast, or he's in a sling right now, and they thought he was going to come back uh, after the regular 15-day disabled list, and now they're not so sure. And the, the amazing, I thought he had hurt his his left arm because when he dove for that ball, he, he made an unbelievable play on it, and he picked it up short hop up with his glove hand, jumped up and threw a strike to second base, and apparently it's his throwing shoulder that's sore. So I don't know how severe it is, but there's another issue with the Reds with a sore arm that I think is even more alarming, and that's Aroldis Chapman. Uh, He's got a a sore shoulder. They're not saying much about it, but he's only pitched once in 10 days. And the time he came in and pitched, he gave up uh, a home run that, that cost... Iglesias a win in the ninth inning. And, again, I think the Reds made a huge mistake, huge mistake by not trading Chapman and trading Jay Bruce a couple weeks ago. And I guess they could still do it. But now you have Chapman with an iffy shoulder, and, you know, what you could have gotten for him at the end of July has certainly gone down. Can you imagine the haul they would have gotten for a role as Chapman and or Jay Bruce? Well, you know, I, I guess the question is, why not just shut him down for the rest of the year? But then that hurts your opportunity to trade him during the winter meetings. That's right. And if you're going to trade him, they want to see that he's got his stuff back. And uh, so I'm sure they're going to you know, get him right, as right as they can. But, uh, I mean, that's the risk you take when you don't make a deal like that. And, you know, I, I saw an article the other day. I forgot who the author was. But they said the Reds, they started off well. And then they chickened out. They didn't go all the way. And to go all the way, you needed to trade Frazier, you needed to trade Chapman, and you needed to trade Bruce. And you would have gotten back a haul that would have made you competitive in 16 and maybe a favorite in 17. And they didn't do it. So now you went halfway, and you, you, you're going to be twixt between now for the next two or three years. And... <laughs> Again, that's that with the farm system they had. My gosh, they had a chance to reload very, very quickly, and they didn't do it. Mark, what's your opinion right now of the replay system in baseball? I like it. I really do like it, and I think they ought to expand it. And the the time that that it takes three or four minutes sometimes, which is long. Most of the time, it takes a minute or a minute and a half. But what people forget is the times that you had people coming out and arguing was at least that long, if not more. And then you were never satisfied because the play wasn't called right. So I'm never one, get the play right. If it takes a minute or two, fine. Okay, get it right. Uh, These are billion-dollar businesses these people have, and you're worried about adding five minutes to a baseball game? It makes no sense not to do it. In fact, uh, I saw on, I don't know if it was ESPN or Fox Sports, where they were talking about uh, having no home plate umpire. Is it possible? And they said yes. And they had these lasers set up. With, it changes the strike zone a little bit, but it takes out the vagaries of, of what a strike is. And you could do that today. You could have lasers down the foul lines for a foul ball, fair ball. Uh, just about anything that an umpire does on the basis today, you could have 
a, a camera or a laser do. Now, do you want to go that far? I don't know. But it's inevitable that someday you're going to have a baseball game with no umpires. See, I don't agree with that, to be honest with you. I, I think we need umpires in baseball. To me, that's like going to Walmart and going through the self-checkout line. It's just a way to get rid of checkers you know, at, at, the, at the checkout stand, and, and people are losing their jobs because of the self-checkout. Now, now we're going to get rid of umpires because we've got lasers and computers that can do the job. I, I just don't agree with so that. So you, you'd rather have umpires who aren't as accurate just because you want to give them a job? Good question. But you, I would have to ponder it, but my, my initial reaction would be yes. I you know, it, it would be like saying that we could we could referee football games or, or tennis games. They they've never gotten rid of the the official in tennis. Uh well they, no they don't they didn't get rid of it, but they can be overruled by, by the laser in the computer. They they have that yesterday at Cincinnati. Uh where, where they're more accurate. My the question it's whether we want umpires or not, and there's a certain nostalgia to having an umpire that you can turn around and say you missed it, you jerk. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of fun. But at some and, and you're always going to have them at the amateur level because they can't afford the technology at the amateur level. But at the major league baseball level, is accuracy more important than tradition? And get well, right. we're not getting here. Here's the reason I brought up the question on Saturday. Terry Francona was tossed out of the Indians-Yankees game because of the old neighborhood play. But this one had a twist to it, Mark. D.D. Gregorius, who plays shortstop for the Yankees, was covering second base. The throw took him out towards, it came from the pitcher, it was a bunt, came from the pitcher, took him out towards center field. It was the throw that did it, not evading the runner. Matter of fact, the runner was not even halfway to the bag. The throw pulled him way off of the bag. But the umpire called him out and cited the neighborhood play, and they would not go to the replay to actually look at it. Now, Terry Francona said after the game, the umpires told him, one, the throw was on the bag, that the that Gregorius's foot was on the bag. That was not the case. Two, it was the neighborhood play and it wasn't a replay. That wasn't the case. And three, the runner was bearing down on Gregorius at second. Mark, the runner was Ramirez. He wasn't even halfway to second didn't you, on the play. Didn't you just make my point? I No, but, and, but a computer would not have got that right. There's no way you can have a computer make that no, call. No, not, not a computer, a camera. A camera would have gotten it right, and somebody analyzing that shot. It, that I agree with, but they came out and said that it wasn't a replayable play because it's the neighborhood play. But that, that, that's a rule that would change if you had that, that play. Uh, you could, In other words, let's say the play you just described takes place. Okay, and whoever is up in the press box looking at, and it could be an umpire, looking at that camera play, replay, out goes up on the scoreboard. He's out. It's, it's an accurate play. So the, 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 the vagaries of the umpire making that kind of neighborhood play, which is ridiculous, goes away. You have accuracy. 
You can have umpires, not on the field, but just looking at the cameras to make the call. And that is going to happen someday. And it's going to, it'll be within 10, 15 years, I predict, that you're going to have major league games where the umpires are sitting in a press box and they're calling the game from up there because they have the perfect camera angle. They're not going to miss a play. And that is what, you know, when you have billion-dollar enterprises like this and some idiot umpire misses a call like you just described, that's my whole point about it. And, you know, the, the hardest play to call when you're an umpire, and I umpire, is the call at first base. It, it's Every play is a bang-bang play. And it's so easy to miss. And I'm, I'm always amazed how good those guys are at that play. If, if, even if it's a fraction of a step, 99% of the time they're right. I would agree. And, but that umpire who's on first base, he could be in the press box looking at a camera. He's covering first base. He has four or five angles there. He hits the out button. The guy's out. End of story. No argument. That, I think that's going to be... Do you lose a little of the nostalgia and all that stuff of the umpire? Yeah, you do. But, you know, it's like before you had hot water, you took cold showers because you had no choice. We have a choice now. So I, I think it's going in that direction. And, you know, the kids coming up, uh, if, if they grow up and there's no umpire, they're still going to be used to it. It won't, it won't be a big deal. Well, Mark, we're winding down tonight's show. What are the Reds got coming up this week? Well, they got the they get, tonight. They got Detroit. Uh, last I checked, it was five to nothing. That game is probably over by now. Uh, and they got the Dodgers coming in for four games, and then they go on the road for a ten-game road trip. I'm telling you, the Reds are within uh, striking distance of a record that will be held in infamy for probably the next hundred years uh, for Reds fans. The Reds could lose ten to fifteen games in a row. Well, the Indians have the Brewers coming up tomorrow night and Wednesday. They're off Thursday, and then they've got the Angels coming to town. That'll be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. Mark, that's going to do it for us tonight. We'll be back again next Monday night. Thanks a lot. Have a good one, Dave. We'll talk to you again next week. couple of housekeeping items here this evening as we wind down tonight's show. First of all, our high school football coverage will begin on Friday night here on Ultimate Sports Talk. We've got Waynedale playing Tusky Valley, and that game will be brought to you at 7 o'clock with the kickoff, 6.30 with the PNC Bank pregame show, and 6 o'clock with Golden Bear Rewind. And on Thursday night, we've got the Ultimate Sports Talk show. That's at 7. My guest will be Cleveland Kate, and we'll be talking about the status of Cleveland sports. That's all coming up on Thursday night here on Ultimate Sports Talk on the Ultimate Sports Talk show. And again, Mark and I will be back next Monday night with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show. That will be at 9 o'clock next Monday night. Our thanks once again to Jose Mesa Jr. for being our guest here this evening. Also to Mark Donahue, our producer Greg Mitchell, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. Until next Monday night at 9, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with. 
Mickey and the Duke. 